Lucifer Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. For all things comics, movies, media, music, and more, check out the Cage Club Network. That's cageclub.me. Welcome back to all new, all different, Uncanny X's for Podcast, where we examine the Uncanny X-Men comic book franchise as it begins its multi-title 80s expansion. I'm your host, Jonah. I'm Dylan. And I'm Nico. And what once began as a podcast about comic books has since morphed into an excuse for you to have to buy every single republication Marvel puts out and subscribe to Marvel Unlimited. We hope you survive the financial experience. It's like getting, like, thin-dommed. It's just a nightmare. So, outside of being financially dominated by the comic book industry, how you guys doing sad that i'm not fin doming someone yeah right i would like wouldn't that, be, wouldn't that be an amazing mutant power just like you just constantly put up twitter photos of your feet and people just send you millions of dollars that's how that works right you just like show feet and just like you get whatever no, 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 you no, no, want no, no, no. you need the only fans first and then you show your feet oh. and then you get the millions of dollars you just put it on twitter no one's gonna pay you because they're gonna look at their grade and isn't there like a bunch of only fans knockoffs now there's like just fans and true fans and only feet and like isn't there just like a whole bunch of them? Well, that's how markets work. But also from what I heard, OnlyFans is bad. Like, it's really hard to upload stuff. There's like multiple people have to do like multiple payments throughout the time. Like, it's just not good from what I've heard. I am learning so much about the two of you. <laughs> it feels we're very like well nursed in a lot people. of things. Like, <laughs> we are, yes, yeah, we're very well rounded. And speaking of well rounded, today's reading list is absurdly well rounded. We're going to be taking a look at all sorts of corners of the Marvel Universe. And by that, I mean we're just going to be looking at three titles, but it's really fucking weird. We're going to be taking a look at a Marvel team up we missed along the way Marvel Team Up 124, which should have been covered when we covered the Beast's little Defenders Avengers debacle fiasco. We're also going to be taking a look at Uncanny Annual Number 6, which is a follow up to the Storm Dracula one-shot. We're going to be taking a look at New Mutants number four, Who's Scaring Stevie? Yet another one of the New Mutants' incredibly gripping, realistic stories. Oh, man. At least they're almost over. And then we're going to take a look at Marvel Team-Up Annual number six. You know, we were doing so well. We were looking at so little Marvel Team-Up for so long. Dylan, I know you came in toward the latter end of the... Every episode was like six issues of Classic and like five Marvel Team-Ups. There's actually this huge chunk of the series that's just Marvel team up. I started getting really punny with the titles and being like, "Is this even about the X Men anymore? It's about Spider Man." And it was it was really rough, Jonah. I don't want to go back to those days. How about you? No, not at all. You know, it's so unfortunate that they keep using the characters we have to cover. In a perfect world, Marvel team up would have touched any of the X Men at all, and then we would never have to cover it. That said, I actually didn't hate these two issues of Marvel team up. You know, I can say we read worse. That's a statement. That is true. That is very true. Dylan, how much Marvel team-up experience do you have? I actually don't have that much. The ones that I've read for the podcast here lately are all new to me. Do you have any experience with some of the later iterations, like Ultimate Team-Up, which introduced 
Laura to Spider-Man? There is a few older ones. That is actually one of them that I did, I have read. There's a few other ones like Spider-Man and Cannibal, like super random ones here and there that I have read, but for the most part, I haven't read too many. Spider-Man and Cannibal, that's like 149 or something, right? And then I think 150 is the X-Men, and we'll be covering both of those. So keep a keen eye on that. To start things off, Marvel Team-Up 124 features a sequel of sorts to a sort of two-part issue thing that we read a couple of months back. Jonah, I know you were on that terrible two Marvel Team-Up, the Wolverine one and then the Xavier one, and the kid was in his body and he was paralyzed and Xavier accidentally led to the kid's brain exploding (laughs) or something. Jonah, you were on that, right? Yeah, I was there. That wasn't a fever dream we shared. That was an actual episode and those were actual issues we had to read. Oh, that's a combination relieving and depressing. Dylan, were you on that one? I was not on that one, and I'm glad. <laughs> you really weren't missing anything. Well, okay, I'm really glad too, because it, well, no, no, I'm glad because it means we get to try and piece this together for you. Okay, so it was Spider-Man and Xavier, and there was a bad man, and the bad man had a son, and the son was catatonic or comatose or like paralyzed or something, and the dad was like, I'm gonna make this happen, and you're gonna save my kid, and the resultant explosion made the kid's brains go fry, fry, fly. So that's all you missed. I think you're missing a part where Charles wasn't the first psychic he tried to use to get his son out of the state. Charles was the second psychic with a different psychic mutant. I don't remember his name. It wasn't Mesmero. It wasn't our gay fantastic Mesmero. I forget what his name was. But this mutant was like also in a coma because he tried breaking out the son, I think. And then Charles was like, I I can't do this because your son has to do it on his own. And then the son died and it was... (laughs) So the other thing about this story that kind of made me go, oh Jesus, is Vera is in it and i'm like aren't you in a coma yeah so that's why i think this goes just before that dylan you are you are silent like you're trying to get out of talking about this no you're part of this now you don't have a choice this isn't this isn't like the teacher is like who needs to use the bathroom before we get back on the bus you don't get to you can't pee until we get back to the school this isn't the end of a field trip you have to participate this is the last rule of fight club (laughs) the marvel team-up books though I feel like they aren't X-Men friendly, so that's why I'm quiet. You know, I want to actually dial into that. That's something really terrific. They aren't X-Men friendly, and I want to talk about why that's a really important distinction that we're going to be making over and over again throughout the series. There isn't a whole lot to this story. As a matter of fact, I don't even think it made sense to include Beast. I'm not sure why it's the Beast. It's just another generic beat-em-up. But using the phrase X-Men friend, there are a handful of books that when an X-Men appears in that title, it really, really feels like an X-Men's appearance. Marvel... Comics Presents will have varying degrees of success on this, but for the most part, Wolverine's pretty in character. Beyond that, Power Pack is a title that comes to mind as consistently strong for X-Men ties. Daredevil, when Daredevil connects to the X-Men, thanks to Anne Nesenti, longtime ex-editor, moving over and writing Daredevil for a number of years. There's a lot of positive to be said about shared inter-universe time, where titles coexist and work together to create a universe. But the other side of that that sort of downside is I feel like every time an X-Man appears in Marvel Team-Up, it just falls flat clunk on its face. I have to unfortunately agree with you on that. I don't mind the Beast B-plot of his parents accepting him, or 
at least his mother, because his dad was pretty on board with it from the get-go. But I don't understand why this was here. If this entire issue was meant to showcase Spider-Man and a different character to promote both books, why did Beast get so much focus? And why was it here? Why was it not in, like, a main issue? This is a series that I don't know how popular it actually was when it was first being printed. How many people actually read the story of Beast's parents having to come to terms with his much more visible mutation? So, a question you're asking, how many people really read that? Spider-Man used to have an incredible amount of power in being on the cover, in being in the title. There was a period in time where they just threw a Spider-Man on it and it sold. There was a period in time where they just threw Wolverine on it and it sold. They were comfortable in knowing they would never need to worry if that title would hit its numbers because that character did the job. So, yeah, I hear what you're saying. I And I do, you know, because there was a time where this was the closest thing to a book you were going to get about coming home and being gay. There was a time where this was the closest thing you were going to get to a book about coming home and transition. So, and you know, we're not that much further than it now, it would seem some days, with the number of queer characters' titles being cancelled at Marvel. So, I really do hear what you're saying. There is a frustration to the saccharine lack of authenticity that this story carries for me. I don't think it all lands exactly how I want it to. I think it does come off kind of flat. I find myself disappointed because as a queer man, I would have liked to have seen this story handled in a much realer way. The idea that the minute her baby's in danger, she's going to have a, you know, freakgasm and go save him. No, she already knew he was a fucking Avenger. This isn't, this is that whole Beast just realized he might die for the first time bullshit again. It's so weak and it's so inauthentic to the experience of a minority. So I do get your distaste for it. I do get your frustration and I do get feeling angry and let down by the storytelling here. Just like we've been mentioning in the Dazzler episodes, some of these Marvel team-ups with X-Men and Spider-Man, it just seems like the writer knows that there's an X-Man and they're going to put their own little spin on it despite however they may have been acting in previous Avenger or X-Men books. And that that's why it seems a little non-X-Men friendly to me. And that's even what I meant. Like, you'll you'll be getting a solid story from that character appearing in Power Pack. If Wolverine appears in Power Pack, you know that because Wheezy is either editing it or Anne is editing it because somebody connected to the X office is going to be taking care of that title. You can be sure that you're going to get a strong X character depiction. I think the issue with Beast here and the saccharine nature of his story, it's sort of like two different reasons that this was a weak story all at once, if that makes sense yeah it does it, it does and i i would even argue that, that everything about this issue was weak and it felt like there just could have been more you know it was weird having the spider-man moving aunt may with her old buddies which i thought was cute but it was i don't know it's just weird like there was a weird mishmash of what this issue the story was trying to tell and i think what it actually told it felt so disconnected from the events of what peace was going through from what spider-man was going through and i know a lot of times in comics the hero just happens to upon the crime of whatever the villain is doing but like i don't know it, it's just all it all just misses the mark i feel like every element they tried to add to this just fell flat for me i think after 125 they're just really starting to struggle for new ways to accidentally bring people together speaking of people who just sort of randomly come together i love bill sinkevich and i love storm and i guess i like dracula i don't know that this annual like i you know i well uh <laughs> So, um, 
I have a lot of feelings about a number of things in this annual. <laughs> X-Men annual number six makes me unhappy, but happy, but unhappy. You know what I'm saying? This annual was basically an episode of Melrose Place. <laughs> well, Melrose Place never had a supernatural element, but outside of that, absolutely. <laughs> it feels very much like an episode of Dark Shadows. This is just trashy, trashy, and all the, oh, no, but possessed, oh, no, but possessed, and it's so, gosh, it really is, it's a something else kind of issue. The bottom of the issue is Storm dreams that she's biting all of the X-Men, and they dream it too, and Dracula has recently turned a Van Helsing who has spent their entire life uh, stalking Dracula and now teaches Dracula as a novel at a nearby school and so but then Kitty gets possessed and like I'm, I know I'm like hamming this up but like it is an issue that I think because Claremont saw it as oh I have an annual I have 40 pages let me have a lot of fun I think he perhaps let himself have a little a little more fun than the story benefited yeah, from I would agree with that I think if he had shortened the story down to a normal 22-pager, there would have been a lot more focus. But because he was experimenting and enjoying that 40 pages, there are some meandering parts. There's also elements I don't need. I appreciate that annuals were often an opportunity for a storyteller to step outside of the normal scope of, this, of the narrative. And, oh, what would it be like if I told a story that is primarily about Dracula instead of telling a Dracula story primarily about the X-Men? For my money, it doesn't doesn't always land the way I would like. Jonah, we've joked since, like, the first episode that when you signed up for this, you thought you were signing up for a lot of supervillains throwing bridges at each other. And you've had interdimensional battles, you've had demon cards, you've had evil clowns, you've had dark circuses, you've had alien boat experiences, broccoli monsters. And honestly, at this point in canon, Claremont sees himself turning to magic a lot more frequently. While this is probably the end of Dragon for some time, it's not the end of Storm, Magic, and especially Possession. Jesus Christ, Claremont just invents whole characters that their only bit is Possession going forward. Knowing what your expectations were and being a year into this project, how are you feeling about the infusion of Magic into the mutant ethos? I like it. I like the inclusion of Magic. It's the beauty of Magic is you set your own rules is and you make it fit. That being said, I wish there were maybe better ways that this can go about it, and I think there needs to be a very strong line that Chris needs to draw between the ability to perform magic and arcane arts and being a mutant. Sometimes those things can coincide together, but it really does need to be a strong distinction that who can use magic and who cannot, what are the limitations, and I don't think from this story we got enough of that. You know, I think I was pretty disappointed in a couple of things. I think my main disappointment is Van Helsing, you know, they're very well known within their own mythos of being slayers of Dracula and they're trained and they're do this. We get a fade to black and I'm pretty sure she would have put up a much more of a fight than what it appeared and insinuated to be. I completely agree. And that's even what I meant uh, in some ways by this is just like a Dracula story the X-Men get dropped into. Dylan, what's your relationship with the X-Men and magic as it relates to more than just Ileana and the Scarlet Witch, but tropes like Dracula and Merlin? I feel like it is good that they introduced 
magic and things like that. And when I say magic, I don't necessarily just mean Ileana, but the magic that Ileana does. I'm glad that they introduced it a little early into the X-Men because I feel like that's a small way of making sure that the X-Men are connected to the other parts of the Marvel Universe that aren't necessarily that popular because at this point we've had tons of Marvel team-ups with Spider-Man and occasional dealings with the Fantastic Four and the Avengers. And But there hadn't been too much with the magic side like Doctor Strange and all that goes with him and I think maybe Dracula was in Marvel Comics before X-Men as well. So I like that they introduced it early but sometimes it can come off a little campy or a bit much. I feel like this annual continuing story of Dracula and the X-Men and Dracula and Storm, I think it was a story that probably didn't need to be told, or like you said, maybe if it was shortened and given a little more depth in pages instead of making a story last 40 pages that could have very well been told in 20, I would agree with that comment that you said earlier. And I want to just jump in that Marvel actually had a very long, powerful history with publishing as a horror imprint. It kept them alive for a number of years, like when they turned into a romance imprint to survive. Marvel and horror go back a long, long way. So I really do get them wanting to keep horror strong and alive, but I agree with both of you. It just feels really like it's kind of shoved in there. And speaking of shoved in there, oh dear god, we are on the last of the hyper-moralistic New Mute stories. Now, Dylan, I'm going to assume it goes without saying, you've read every issue of the New Mute. Correct, yeah. Okay, so you'll agree with me when I say that this is pretty much the end of the hyper-moral narrative of the New Mutes. Yeah, I feel like it starts to get a little more hero-y and X-Men related after this. Yes. Now, the New Mutants have covered a lot of trickier topics already, whether it's a child needing to drop out of school to get a job and take care of his family, which Cannonball had to do, or it's being the victim of racism and prejudice, like happened to Birdo. We've seen a number of, man, I can't even, I can't even stop, poor Shan from war-torn Vietnam, or Danny, who grew up a Native American and has lost nearly every parent figure she's ever had, broken-hearted orphan rain, like, I just can't stop. All of their lives are real fucking tragic, right? And at a certain point, it does start to feel like a Nick News, Linda Ellerbee special. An after-school special every single one of these issues so far. Yeah, so that issue one was so heavy-handed that that opening exchange, you might remember, we referred to it as stop being so foreign, Shan. That was really awkward. And then there was the awkward at the mall with the Sentinels. It's just been so much heavy. And finally, we have this chance to enjoy a new mutant story, the X at our home and oh this one's about child abuse oh and the next one's about teens on drugs <laughs> so jonah i promise the new mutants are fun i have to believe you <laughs> but y- you know the proof is um nowhere in this pudding <laughs> It gets better. There is just no proof in this pudding. That's what they it all does, say. Because without getting without getting too spoilery, we're gonna do two issues that tie into the Wolverine four part mini. Then the new mutants leave the country for quite a while before I imagine the gentleman featured on this podcast with us is about to get mm-hmm. very excited because we are not too <laughs> far off 
from a certain Massachusetts academy. <gasps> and before you know it, a good Senor Sinkevich comes on and changes everything. So the New Mutants really are going to hit a stride, but I feel like part of what happened was they weren't sure what book to make it. And they wanted to go this sort of a very special blossom route, and <laughs> it just didn't work the way they wanted. It just falls really flat, really uncomfortable. So they start to rework the book, and, you know, the best the New Mutants ever is, for my sake, is the Bill Sienkiewicz that, I think it's like 18 to, like 18 to 32 or something. That chunk is some of the best they ever did. Then there's the two follow-ups. More Children just came out, and terrific. And I want you to know that I do recognize that this material is heavier than it needs to. That said, Stevie Hunter has found herself a victim far too much for my taste. Now, God Loves Man Kills was one of the most rewarding episodes I've gotten to be a part of on this show. Being a part of your guys' discussion and moderating that, as well as editing it, was a pleasure. But once again, I feel like Stevie, just like on that episode where we talked about one of the only real shortcomings of that narrative is the way Stevie is treated. I feel like Stevie's treated like shit immediately again. And to kind of be like a continuity weirdo, if you use the Uncanny X-Men 3 Omnibus and the New Mutant Epic Collection, and you use the point where they sync up together, Uncanny 167, God Loves Man Kills and Who's Scaring Stevie are like one right on top of another. That's two stories where abusing Stevie is a secondary feature of another person, primarily a white man's abuse of a third party. That does not work for me. Yeah, reading these issues, especially since we just did God Loves Man Kills, and this, for me, since I've read about 99% of every X-Men thing that's been written. This isn't the Stevie that I think of a majority of the time. The Stevie I know is not one to be messed with, even though she's human. I agree. Stevie is a badass, and Stevie takes no shit. So, it feels a little weird that I feel like she's maybe taking a little bit of shit. Jonah, you're the only person of this show right now reading this for the first time. How is this translating to you as a new reader, engaging with this work for the first time ever. A lot of my feelings about this issue were I was just uncomfortable for way too much of it. It really just made me upset and it's what you said, it's the treatment of Stevie. It's the, you know, it makes me upset that no one's taking this seriously and that she feels like she has to do it on her own because she doesn't want to trust the X-Men and it's this weird, like, Charles is kind of, like, power-playing the New Mutants, which is just weird because they're kids. And then we get into the whole reveal of Peter being abused, and that just makes me up. Like, that entire sequence made me so upset, and all that dialogue. I appreciate when Chris wants to tackle much more heavy issues. I say it all the time that we give him Friend of the show, the, Chris. Friend of the show, Chris. Uh, <laughs> we give... <laughs> We give our friend uh, credit for trying to write stories way before ahead of his time. But when you do that, and you're one of the first to tackle heavy issues like that, you're going to be under a lot of scrutiny because there's going to be a lot that either you get really right or you get really wrong. And I think too many things wrong in this for me to really enjoy it. I can't disagree. I really do feel like outside of trying to touch on some really powerful things, and like he didn't pull his punches. One of the things that I've often joked about is too many sitcoms cure alcoholism in an episode 
episode, too frequently drug addicts kick the habit overnight, and I can tell you that's not how that works. So, like, it's really interesting that Claremont put in the effort that this young man was looking to be abused. This wasn't that he was abused, so he abused back. This was specifically he understood that abuse functioned as a success method to get love. So that was a really cool touch. But, you know, I found that story a little more uncomfortable than the Marvel Team-Up Annual. Personally, I thought while the Marvel Team-Up Annual also tries to be another kind of moral play, it at least relies on other characters. And it sounds like I'm maybe splitting hairs with that, but it actually does matter to me that it primarily focuses on Cloak and Dagger as the kind of like bummer perspective. It also matters that it was written by Bill Mantlo. Bill Mantlo does a really great job. He handles the characters really well. I think that while Marvel Team Up is not frequently a title that is warm, gooey, lovey for the X-Men, I do feel like in this case, Bill Mantlo, a writer that we have occasionally accused of mishandling the X-Men, perhaps, did a really good job, actually. I enjoy this issue. It's a little silly, but I enjoy it. Dylan, what are your thoughts on Marvel Team-Up Annual 6. Earlier, when I did say that the Marvel Team-Ups don't seem X-Men friendly, I knew I was gonna have to backtrack when we started talking about this one, because... Not backtrack, just elaborate. (laughs) This one is good, like you said. It's a little silly, but I feel like the New Mutants were written well, but again, the New Mutants are new, so we are still learning a bit about them, but I feel like he captured what Chris has captured so far with the New Mutants. It did feel like just another New Mutants issue that also had other Marvel heroes in it as well. And Jonah, I want to bring up the fact that when we read the Dracula issue, I said to you, this is going to come back up, and you were like, oh, but why? (laughs) And I was like, well, because it does, buddy. What if I told you this comes back up? I would believe you. I have a better understanding of why something like this would come up because of the way it's written, and this, I guess you can take more seriously. I kind of have to disagree with both of you. It's not that I didn't like this issue. I thought it was pretty well. I don't think any of the new mutants characters were written poorly, but I think it's maybe my disdain for who Cloak and Dagger are, and it's mostly just because they come off too edgelordy for me. You know, you can make an edgelord and you can... (laughs) (laughs) You you can... (laughs) (laughs) Cloak and Dagger are edgelording. Oh my god, they're the Smiths. They're Joy Division. (laughs) I'm so happy. Um, I, I, like I just don't. I have no other ways. To just, I did. It's <laughs> I, um, <laughs> you can have an edgy character, but like that. No one. Listen. No one wants to play with that when they're on their team. No one wants to be. I have to work alone in the dark. No one understands me. Blah blah blah. No one cares. I, I can't. I'm sorry. It, it, it was just too much edge for me. I've never heard it described as edgelording for them in particular. Like, I know the term, but, like, I've never considered that. Because I've always really been offended by the racial overtones of the black character is overtaken by darkness, the white character, the only thing that can purify and heal him. I've always been so blinded by the ugliness of the racial implications, though they have done amazing thing TV show, and a TV show has explored opportunities 
opportunities to discuss white privilege, down to Tandy has even been like, I'm a thief too. And they've had to be like, no, you're still a white thief why you're such a successful thief. They've done some really good work on race. I've been so blinded by that discussion that I guess I've just never considered that it's like, we got our powers from drugs. I grew up in the 1980s. If one of your sitcoms didn't do an episode where one of the teenagers got addicted to drugs and addicted to guns and addicted to drinking and addicted to driving really fast and addicted to beating their girlfriend and also addicted to getting beaten by their parents, it wasn't a sitcom. So I never really thought about how that part of it for you would be so over dramatic. Dylan, had you ever considered how, I guess, for lack of a better term, silly Cloak and Dagger have aged? I think I have a few times, but Jonah saying how edged 40 they are is kind of really spot on for them because Cloak and Dagger, everything about them is so dark and this and that and they are just like the king and queen of being edgy, but then also they haven't really been that popular in Marvel Comics. Popularity has never been a concern of Cloak and Dagger's. It's the best line for Runaways ever. The Runaways have had several crossovers with Cloak and Dagger, and as a matter of fact, in true crossover fashion, the TV shows will be crossing over in Cloak and Dagger's third season, as well as Runaways. Hey everyone, Warpath Dylan here, and I want to introduce you to a new feature that we are going to start having here on X's for Podcast. It's called Warpath Dylan's House of Characters. Periodically, I will be having a one-on-one with you, the fans, to talk about your favorite X-Men characters. This episode, we are going to be talking to Regina. Regina helps me run the incredible X-Men Facebook group that I talk about a lot here on X's for Podcast. The group is called House of X. Welcome to the show, Regina. Hi, Dylan. Hi. Regina, what character have you chose for us to talk about today? Well, I am here because I love Danielle Moonstar. She is one of my favorite characters. I really enjoy her character and everything that she does within the storylines. And I really think that she's someone that we can focus on and kind of give her a little bit of a spotlight. Awesome. What draws you to Moonstar? Why do you like her? Why do you want to talk about her so much? When I first started reading X-Men, it was in the early 90s. And I was about 13 when I very first started. One of my classmates, he really loved X-Men comics and he gave me some of his trading cards. So I started reading, you know, the various X books. And eventually I started reading X-Force. And that's really where I started having my introduction to Moonstar. And she was part of the MLF at the time. She was undercover with them. And I kind of was like, who is this woman? She's wearing this kind of skanky outfit. (laughs) um, (laughs) Yeah, it, it was pretty... Pretty risque, it was but it was provocative. But she had black hair, and I also have black hair. So I was like, well, maybe there's more to her than meets the eye. I thought her outfit was very provocative, but I really liked the outfit. It was just kind of like, who is she? And she's got this mask on. She's got this necklace with all these teeth or claws on it. And I was like, who is this woman? So then I started reading more <laughs> about her. And then I found out that she had actually been one of the new mutants. So I was trying to figure out how did she join the MLF. So then I had to go back and read extra books to find out where did she she transitioned. And then, of course, it came out she was actually undercover. When I learned more that she was actually Cheyenne and that, and I was able to actually read some of the first books that she was part of, what was really exciting for me, I am someone who is of Mexican heritage. I was so excited to find out that she was not only Cheyenne, but that she was proud of being Cheyenne. 
and there was the book where she kind of stood up to Xavier. She's got this uniform and she's kind of decorated it with some Cheyenne artifacts. And, you know, he's fussing at her and telling her, you really need to conform. And, you know, we're trying to be a solidified front here. And she's like, no, Xavier, I'm going to be who I am. And you can't take that from me. My mother was actually raised in South Texas and she kind of had a traumatic childhood with the school system there. They made them change like the names from Spanish names to Anglicized names. So her name is Maria, but they made her go by Mary. Because of that, I think she really wanted me to conform because we were living in Alabama. We were the only non-black, non-white people in the whole town that we were in. And she, I think she did it more as a protective measure, but she really wanted me to conform. And even then, you know, I was five and six old and I was like, I don't want to conform. <laughs> So watching yeah. Star, you know, talking to Xavier about how she's not, you know, she's willing to be part of the team, but she's not going to conform. For me, that was very empowering. And she was proud. And for me, it was very inspiring. That's really cool. When it comes to talking to X-Men fans, I love that they can always find someone that they can relate to, even if it's something a little bit different, like with you being of Mexican descent, being able to relate to Danny and her non-conforming with Xavier and being Cheyenne. That's really awesome that everybody that's X-Men fans can always find something to relate to like that. Right. And just, you know, and as she kind of evolved and she was just such a strong character, you know, she was no wilting flower. She was always, you know, at the forefront of the fight, always ready to battle. And that was very inspiring for me. And I really, I loved her for that. You have mentioned to me before how much you love Moonstar, even after she was depowered during End Day. Tell me a little bit about that. It kind of reminded me a little bit of when Storm was depowered and how strong that Storm was and how she had to be. When Moonstar was depowered and, you know, they were on Utopia and Emma ended up asking her to leave because of her inability to possibly defend herself. But I just did not find that to be a very good argument. My issue is that Danny has always shown that her value is more than her powers. She's very brave. She's cunning. She's strong. She's intelligent. To me, her mental fortitude and her courage under fire have been some of her greatest attributes. She's always been an asset to any team that she's joined. You know, when she was a teacher, you know, she was showing once again that she was a good leader, a strong leader leader. She was able to relate to the kids she was teaching. So I was very disappointed by that. And then later on, there was a battle with her and Legion and Cannonball was there. And he basically told her, you know, this is too dangerous for you. You don't have any powers. You need to leave. He ended up coming back and hitting his attacker with a car right when he was about to get it. You know, I think he was a very ashamed that he did not realize that, you know, she is more than just her powers, that her personality is what makes her such an amazing person. He's constantly being under estimated and even by her own friends. And I think that's something that's kind of frustrating for me, but I do enjoy the fact that it's part of a larger plot. But I think it shows how incredibly rich her character is and how much her stories do need a greater spotlight. I completely agree. I feel like even Danny as just human. So despite any of the times here in the past couple of years where she's used her Valkyrie powers, Danny as human, I kind of think is a little bit more interesting than Danny with mutant powers. I agree. Moonstar is focused, or it looks like she is going to be focused on in the new 
New Mutants book that is a part of the Dawn of X titles that are starting this month and next month. What do you hope to see in this new title that Moonstar is a part of? I'm really excited because I think that she has never really been treated as an A-list character, and I do think that she has A-list qualities. But most people know, you know, who Wolverine is, Cyclops, Jean Grey, and Storm, but they don't really know who Moonstar is. So, you know, when I geek out at work and people are just like, who are you talking about? Believe me, loving Monet and Warpath, I completely understand your struggle. No one knows who these C-lister characters are that we love. Right, and they are such amazing characters. But I think something that propels characters into being part of the A-list team is, you know, when they have kind of these rich love lives and triangles. And X-Men have always kind of had this soap opera quality to them, which I love. (laughs) And I would not be averse to Danny having her own little love triangle. You know, just something a little bit extra in addition to just her regular storyline. I love that she's been such a strong single person for so long. You know, she had her little fling with Cannonball kind of fizzled out after a while. I would love to see her developing more as a person with a partner or as part of a love triangle. And I think that would add something a little extra. But I'm also looking forward to seeing her in the new title and kind of seeing where is her story going to go? How is she going to develop now that she's free of the techno-organic virus and how how have things changed for her and how will they continue to change for her in the future? Regina, I want to thank you so much for being on the first episode of House of Characters with me and picking an incredible character to talk about. I want to tell all the listeners that you can find both Regina and I on Facebook at our X-Men group that is called House of X. Regina and I also run another Facebook group that is actually called House of Moonstar. So if you're a die-hard Moonstar fan like Regina and myself, you could look up House of Moonstar and join that group for anything Moonstar related. Regina, where could everyone find you everywhere else on the internet if you want to share that? Sure. Um, You can find me on Instagram. It's a little bit of a weird handle, but it's Gina, G-I-N-A. Gina, J-I-N-A, underscore at R-E. Okay. Thank you, Regina. Everybody have a great day. Thank you. One of the things that I think is starting to become really clear is that when friend of the pod, Chris, needs to reset after a big idea, he does like a handful of one-offs and tries to cleanse our palate a little bit. We had so much happen with the Brood Saga the first time, then we had a handful of brief one-shots, like the first Dracula store, the Carol store, the Ileana store. Then we went back to space, we did more Brood stuff, and when we came back, we immediately turned back to magic things. We immediately turned back to Dracula. I sort of see how he puts the pieces together, and that's part of why I love reading it so holistically. I have to assume, Dylan, since this isn't your first time reading a ton of this, you've read some of it maybe in a read order before. In your previous reads, did you read the titles in a vacuum, one at a time? Did you try and cross-reference them? How had you experienced the X-Men for this? How do you think that's affecting this read? I read the X-Men books kind of in a vacuum. I didn't really cross-reference them, but I was able to figure out where there was the cross-referencing of stories or details. I kind of read each title separately as a quick run-through. I think it is a 
affecting my judgment a little bit, just because when I read them before, it was a handful of years ago, but I wasn't taking a lot of consideration into different styles of writers in particular, and possibly wasn't taking into consideration the time in society of when their stories were written. I feel like actually rereading it and being able to discuss it with you guys is actually helping me realize what aspects of certain stories was actually good and good to be in the media for people to read and which ones were just kind of super cheesy even for being a comic book. I really feel you on that. I really understand this book better and this universe better for reading it with you guys. Jonah, what are your thoughts on this episode? The Marvel team-up was a Marvel team-up. We already beat that dead horse, and the horse was never alive to begin with, so... Bye-bye, little Sebastian. (laughs) (laughs) He was not 5,000 candles in the wind. The Uncanny X-Men annual, I don't even have much more to say about that because it was just so all over the place and just so weird and too much mishmashy and blah, 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 blah. But my biggest takeaways, especially from reading the New Mutants issues or the issues that contain them, were that even though that they're new characters, they at least have personalities that they're coming into, and I can see them growing into the characters that they're eventually going to become, and I know that characters definitely do change, but I can see the the forming of it. You know, they're not one-dimensional, one-note as the X-Men were when they first got started. They think they have a better running start of figuring out who they are as characters. Noticeably, you see Danielle really kind of take the leadership role when nobody else wants to. We see a little bit of that with Sam, but I I think Rain right now is too timid. Shan is might be a little bit too timid, and Roberto's too a little bit full of himself to be the leader. But Sam and Danny really are starting to set themselves apart as more mature that they can handle the responsibility of being a mutant hero. And not that I'm not saying Roberto, Shan, and Rain can't do that, but those two characters, for me at least, are starting to stand out a little bit more. I agree with a lot of your assessments. Early on, the new mutants really do benefit from Chris Claremont not being a new writer like he was in the early pages of Uncanny X-Men. By this point, he's already established not just his own voice, but his voice within the halls of this mansion. This isn't a man trying to figure out the best way to create these characters. This is a writer who understands the potential of the franchise that he has masterminded for the last 10 years and is ready to take it to the next level. Guys, it has been such a pleasure, as always, discussing our favorite thing in the world, X-Men, and I can't wait to get together and talk about more comics. Until then, Dylan, where can everybody find you online? Everyone can find me at my Facebook group for X-Men that is titled House of X. And you can also find me on Instagram at Warpath underscore Dylan. That is Warpath underscore D-Y-L-A-N. Jonah, where can everybody find your fuzzy little face? Trying to break into a library to steal a boat that can only destroy me. But then I'm stopped by my daughter that nobody knew I had. Or you can find me online on Twitter and Instagram at Jonah and at Jonah.Ravino. Nico, where can everybody find you? As always, you guys can find me all over this amazing network on shows like Too Fast, Too Forever, 5, 6, 7, 8, Patty. You can also find my amazing, super cool, super inclusive superhero comic, Kid Ride, over at KidRideComics.com. Don't forget to look at my other cool shows on this network, like the other feeds of this nonsense, as well as HTML, Hugs Talk, more or less. And you guys can find me on Instagram at NicoAction, N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And until we return to Gray Malkin Lane, everybody, we will see you. Bye. Goodbye.